0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is writer, Air Force veteran, and stroke survivor, Tamsin Butler. We talk about Butler's life-threatening stroke in 2015, about her life before and her life after it, and the lessons she has learned about herself, authenticity, and how she chooses to show up in the world.
1: It has since evolved to authenticity being who I perceive myself as, because I don't perceive myself as that bumbling person anymore. And every so often it'll sneak up on me and I'll forget some words or, you know, I'll space off or something. So it's still there. But who I am at my core is a very competent woman and an intelligent woman. And so that, to me, is my authentic self.
0: Born and raised in Southern California, Tamsin Butler has lived in the Omaha area for two decades. An award-winning author and Air Force veteran, she's the senior marketing copywriter for a large financial services firm and a frequent contributor to Omaha magazine. She also teaches yoga and indoor cycle classes at various gyms in the Omaha area. A major stroke in 2015 left Butler with a host of physical and cognitive deficits. As a result, she learned a hard earned lesson about what makes a person authentic and shared her thoughts about authenticity on the TEDx Omaha stage in 2023. Tamsin Butler, welcome to Lives. Thanks for having me. So if we could start with the stroke itself, just for my own clarity, could you share like what is a stroke?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of different kinds of strokes. And the stroke I had was an ischemic stroke where a blood clot formed and then traveled up into my brain and blocked blood flow. So basically it messed up everything in my brain and uh, left me paralyzed on one side and uh, made it to where I couldn't really think very well. and don't recommend to anybody, yeah. But it's, it's also, it's been referred to as a brain attack as opposed to a heart attack, if that helps people visualize kind of what it is. It kills a lot of people every year, um, and I was lucky to recover, question mark, from it. Yeah.
0: I think in your TEDx talk you reference a pretty startling number of Americans that actually may encounter this sort of medical phenomenon.
1: Yeah, 795,000 annually. And I mean, it's at varying degrees, too. Uh, one of my fellow TED Talkers just had a transient ischemic attack, which is like a mini stroke, they call it, which is very strange, you know, because she met me, heard my story. And the next thing you know, she's experiencing something similar. So I appreciate that I'm able to be there for her and kind of guide her through it. But, um, you know, stroke kills people. It can leave people disabled. It's one of the top ways that people become disabled. And then there's people like me who just kind of have these lingering deficits that I can hide pretty well. And then there's people that make claims to recover completely. It affects people in different ways, depending on so many different reasons.
0: Leading up to the actual stroke in 2015, you're a healthy person, relatively young. So it would seem in many ways that this was a complete surprise to you.
1: Yeah, what happened was I had a hole in my heart that the blood clot formed through and I did not know that I was making blood clots and I didn't know I had a hole in my heart. So it was this perfect storm that was just waiting for the thing to happen and I had no idea. I mean, I'd gone my whole life not realizing I had a hole in my heart nor that I clotted my blood. So, and they still don't know why I had the blood clot. I don't have any sort of, you know, blood condition or anything. So it's all kind of a mystery. They call that cryptogenic stroke, where they don't understand why it happened.
0: What was happening at the moment that the stroke manifested itself?
1: So my kids were pretty young then. They were um, 11 and 10 at the time, and we were putting groceries away. We went to the grocery store because it was over summer, so they weren't in school. And we're putting groceries away, and all of a sudden I couldn't see out of one of my eyes, and I started to feel very tired and dizzy. So I keep trying to put the groceries away because that's how moms are, you know, they don't stop for anything until I kind of collapsed to the ground. And then I remember looking up and asking my son if he'd go grab me a pillow because I was like, I just need to sleep right here on the kitchen floor. And we thank God they were like, no, they said something's wrong. We need to call somebody because if they'd just let me go back to sleep on the kitchen floor, I probably would not have made it. But they were very quick to call and get help. And an ambulance came and they took me away. That was one of the reasons I was able to recover so quickly, is because I got the TPA medicine, which breaks up the blood clot really quickly. Like within 20 minutes of the stroke happening, I was in the emergency room getting that medication. I was really lucky. I have two kids who are, you know, really vigilant and taking care of their mom, luckily, and we live very close to an emergency room. So it was all those things made it very easy for me to survive.
0: How conscious were you of? what was happening and also what you were seemingly unable to control or do.
1: Well, I'll preface this with a stroke messes up your brain. So your thinking gets really askew. So I knew I was having a stroke because I had all the symptoms, you know, the one side not working and I couldn't speak very well. And all I could think to myself was, I really don't want my husband to see me dying from a stroke because he saw his grandfather die from a stroke. And I was like, this is ridiculous. My husband can't see me die from a stroke. And I'm just going to lay here on the kitchen floor. Like the most reasonable thing in my brain at that time was if I just laid down, then I could just sleep through it and I'd be fine. My thinking was not the best in that moment. But at that time, you know, my brain is not, not functioning correctly.
0: So that's to some degree what you were thinking about. Were you aware of what you were feeling in terms of your emotional response to this?
1: Not really till I got into the ambulance. And then when they closed the ambulance door and started taking me away, I was like, am I going to die right now? I said, is this really it? You know, I was 41 with two beautiful children, you know, and I just, I wasn't ready, basically. So I remember I was laying in the ambulance and the, uh, the tech tells me, you know, stay with us, Tamsin, stay with us, Tamsin. And that was the moment where I was like, uh-oh, this is serious. You know, something's really going on here. And uh, I remember shutting my eyes very tight because I always thought that when I pass, my grandparents will be there to like usher me away. And I was like, as long as I don't see them, I'm not going to die. So I was like, holding my eyes closed really tight. Again, brain not working very well. But yeah, I figured that I might have died and I just wasn't ready. I was like, nope, not going to look, not going to look for the light. I'm just going to stay right here in the ambulance.
0: You it seems were likely unaware of the precise responses of the people around you. And I'm thinking here, particularly of your children, because you mentioned that they were there. So this is maybe with hindsight, but how were they reacting at that time?
1: My son was trying to be very accommodating to me because he could tell something was wrong with me. But my daughter, bless her, just took charge of the situation. There's a moment I remember, and I reference frequently, where I'm lying on the kitchen floor looking up at her, and I'm trying to tell her, It's okay, it's all right, but it's coming out very garbled. And I look up at her and she's standing over me, all of like 11 years old, standing over me with her hands on her hips. And she goes, you are not okay and this is not all right. I'm calling someone. (laughs) (laughs) Because she just, she wasn't putting up with my nonsense.
0: Who did they call? Did they call 911 or was it, did, do you have like an emergency contact? I mean, how did they have the presence of mind to know who who are we calling?
1: They called my husband because he works very close to home or he did at that time. So he, from what I understand, immediately jumped up from his desk and drove home. He worked maybe 10 minutes away from home, got in, took one look at me and called 911 from that moment. So it was a, it was a good sequence of events that helped me live.
0: Let's just jump back then. Uh, you were born and raised in Southern California. Yes. What stands out to you from, from your childhood?
1: I miss the ocean. I miss the mountains. My grandfather died of a stroke, so it was in my family. And it's funny because there's this whole other side of my family that I didn't grow up with and didn't know. Uh, my father's side of the family, they're kind of estranged from him. And so in the advent of Facebook and all that, they found me, and I connected with them, and we started talking, and it sounds like 80% of my family died from strokes, apparently. (laughs) So apparently I didn't know that this was very prevalent in my family.
0: So paint the picture. You love the ocean, so I'm getting the sense that you were fairly close to the ocean. How did that kind of show up in your enjoyment of childhood?
1: Well, I had a very eclectic childhood. My parents, for lack of a better term, are kind of hippies. So I had a very creative, eclectic childhood where we just kind of ran rampant and feral. (laughs) So I had a very creative upbringing and I appreciate that now as an adult, you know, that I wasn't chained to rigid parents who, you know, wanted to discipline and set out rules and all that. So it was more of a fly by the seat of your pants kind of childhood. And that helped me, you know, to who I am now as a creative, I think for sure.
0: What does being a hippie look like?
1: A lot of marijuana. <laughs> um, you know, they were just very free-spirited. Uh, social justice, which I appreciate. Spent a lot of time not working and just kind of being. Uh, we had a lot of imagery of Hindu gods and stuff up in our house. and I mean, It was just different from what everybody else was experiencing growing up in my area, and I appreciated
0: that. Is there something that you still carry with you from those experiences, some characteristic of yours that you can you know, draw a straight line back to that's because that's how I was in my childhood.
1: I'd say the, um, the social justice and um, tolerance of others who are different from me, I carry a lot of that because that's how we grew up. My parents always had friends who were different. I mean, back in growing up in the 80s, not everybody knew somebody who was not a straight white person, but we had those people around us all the time. So to me, it was normal. The moving to Nebraska it was kind of like, where is everybody? <laughs> you know, because it's a little, little more homogenous out here.
0: Uh, do you have siblings?
1: I have an older brother.
0: It's again easy with hindsight to know that you've crafted a profession as a writer. But as you look back to your childhood, did did you see in those creative the creative exposure that your parents provided for you? Do, do you see the the seeds of, of your writing interest?
1: I'd say so. I wrote short stories from a young age, and my mom would read them and, you know, of course, praise them to high heaven. And uh, it was in fourth grade that I decided I was going to become a writer because I took my short story to my teacher and she read it and she liked it. And she says, Do you want to read it to the class? And I said, Well, yes, I would love to read it to the class. And the idea of sitting there creating these ideas and then just releasing them out to a classroom full of kids to me was invigorating. And that was pretty much the moment where I was like, yep, that's what I want to do.
0: I love that idea about the epiphany, that 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 is a moment that you can see in your historical experience that pushed you in a particular direction in your life. So from that point on then, thinking, I want to write, I am a writer, how did you pursue that?
1: You know, I kind of put it on the back burner. I went to college and studied psychology because I found it fascinating and, of course, I had the idea in my head people don't really become writers because you know that's that's the dream that's too much. people don't get to do that. So I pursued psychology and then went into the military. so it's like my trajectory was all over the place and then, after I got out of the military, I went into financial services, uh, which really is a lot of psychology, so I figured you know that fits perfectly and then when I started raising the kids, I stayed home, because my husband at the time was active duty military, and so he would deploy a lot, and somebody had to be at the beck and call of the kids, so that was me. And this was just around the advent of when content writing for websites was really becoming a thing, and SEO was you know burgeoning and everything. And so I just happened to get in right at the right time. Is I saw an ad where somebody said, we're looking for writers, and I was like, I can write. So then I did it. And I mean, it, it paid dismally. It was hardly anything, but it was what got my foot in the door and it just went from there and just blossomed.
0: We'll jump back in a minute to um, your service with uh, Air Force, but during this period when you were thinking, Oh no, writing is just a dream. I'm going to study psychology, go into the Air Force. And, but, but then you found your way to writing. In that period, were you still writing creatively for yourself?
1: a little bit yeah i mean at that point in my life i was raising two kids 18 months apart with a husband who was frequently overseas so i didn't have a lot of time to for creative pursuits until i found that people were actually willing to pay me for those creative pursuits and then i said well maybe i can make some time
0: <laughs> i enjoyed discovering the of your um your published books you know, a number of them are related to personal finances, but also, a, you know, a, a guide to finances for teens and college students and um, making long distance relationships work. Um, how is it that you came to be interested in those particular styles of writing and then those subjects?
1: Well, it's actually kind of a quirky story that a lot of writers won't even believe. But what happened was I answered an ad online. Looking for writers to write books, and I thought it was eBooks because I'd written eBooks for years at that point, and uh, hadn't been published yet. And so I answered the the ad, and they sent me a contract. And as I'm reading the contract, I stop! I tell my husband, I said, I think this is a published book, and he says, No, there's no way. And I said, No, I really think it's a published book. And he goes, Well, I'll do it then. And I said, Okay. So sent the contract back in and started talking to the editor, and I was like, Hey just out of curiosity, is this an ebook or an actual published book? She says, it's a published book. I said, okay, let's go. And that first book was about online dating, which I personally had never done myself, but I pitched it from the sense that I'm like, well, I have a psychology degree. I understand relationships and people. She says, okay, so write it. And this particular publisher, Atlantic Publishing out of Florida, they just keep a roster of authors and then they send you a spreadsheet and they say, which of these titles do you feel like you could write? And you just pick and choose what books you want to write. And that's how I became a published author, was through just that happenstance of getting involved with that publisher.
0: And are you still engaged in, in that work or is, have you been sort of subsumed by uh, the work you do for the, uh, this local financial?
1: Yeah, once I started entering into corporate America as opposed to freelance, I just didn't have time to write books anymore, which is fine. I enjoy writing books, but it is a daunting process and not something that I could do while working full-time, I don't think.
0: You did share that you went to study psychology and then you joined the military. So what was the decision informed by? What was motivating the choice to join the Air Force?
1: I'd run out of money for college. And I had a boyfriend at the time who was in the Army, and he says, you know, the military will pay for your college, but if you're going into the military, you are joining the Air Force, because he said the Air Force was treated better as an Army guy. He said, you have to join the Air Force, and I said, okay, I'll join the Air Force, and I joined the Air Force. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants most of the time. <laughs> Can you tell?
0: <laughs> I don't know if, this is, if that's actually a direct connection to what you were describing as that… Um The image in my head of your upbringing, you described your parents as hippies, and that feels sort of a very flexible attitude to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It's funny because I'm also very intentional in the things I do, so I'm kind of a dichotomy within myself.
0: How long were you in the Air Force for?
1: I did four years in active duty and then four years in what's called individual mobilization augmentee for the reserves. So once a month I'd put the uniform back on and go and work. That was The sum
0: total of it. And and so what were some of the experiences that you had then in the Air Force?
1: Well, I had an interesting job because I was a chaplain's assistant. Because under the Geneva Convention, chaplains are non-combatants and they're not allowed to carry weapons. So they needed somebody to stand there next to them with a weapon. So that's basically what I did. I was kind of like the chaplain's bodyguard. Um, That was during deployments. In peacetime, when I was back on base, I was just running the chapel. It's not really the military job you would think of when you think of somebody in the military, especially the Air Force. You think of planes and, you know, all that stuff. But no, I was in the chapel.
0: Well, forgive the pun, but how did you land uh, in that position?
1: I went into the um, basic training for the Air Force with no guaranteed job. And so then you go in and they kind of tell you what jobs are available. And for the chaplain's assistant job, you have to actually interview with the chaplain to make sure you're of high moral character or whatever. So yeah, so I interviewed with him, and they let me in, and that was it. And I think it was fortuitous, because I I enjoyed it. Military was never really for me. I'm not very good at granting respect without first learning that that person deserves respect, if that makes sense. And uh, so I was never really good in the whole military thing. But if I had to be anything, a chaplain's assistant was probably the best thing for me.
0: That's an interesting aspect of your character to learn about, this idea of Giving respect also requires a uh, capacity to make that choice and see that it's earned. What else did you learn about yourself because of your or through your military service?
1: I learned I was capable of a lot more than I thought I was capable of, and um, that I'm really bad at firing a gun. <laughs> Those are the things I
0: learned. And you're the bodyguard.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I had to, I could. I just <laughs> it, it was it didn't come naturally to me like it does to some other people. But I definitely learned, I earned more of a patriotic stance on America because growing up with my parents, they were, I wouldn't say they're anti-American, but they just weren't patriotic in the least. So I kind of developed that through my military service. Whereas before, like when I was growing up, my parents went to the teacher and said, she will not be doing the Pledge of Allegiance. And so I was excused whenever they did the Pledge of Allegiance because my parents didn't want me doing it. So kind of a bit of a turnaround when I joined the military.
0: The other um, perspective I have maybe of the military and possibly unfair is that uh, the the military is essentially a martial force, so there's an emphasis here on physicality. I'm imagining that as part of your service, there was some emphasis on sort of being physically fit and capable and and all those aspects of um, the requirements.
1: Yeah, you have to maintain a certain level of physical fitness. And you get tested, I think annually, if I remember right, either annually or semi-annually to make sure that you can keep a pace that they want you to keep.
0: Where were you stationed? I mean, where were the various places that you found yourself living?
1: I was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, right outside of Vegas. So great place for a young single woman to be stationed. It was perfection. Um, I deployed to Egypt and to Haiti. And then I finished up my reserve duty out at Lake Air Base in Turkey, where my husband got stationed.
0: What were those experiences like for you?
1: Well, Egypt was amazing. I was there under Operation Bright Star, which is a exercise they do. I don't know if they do it anymore, but it used to be, I think, every two years, where the U.S. and some other military would come in and train the Egyptian Air Force. So we stayed in tents in the desert, which was okay but we did get to go see the pyramids and the cairo museum and all that so it was completely worth it and it was one of the better experiences i had in the military
0: how did they change your perspective on the world
1: i think it helped me to understand that we can't understand some things till we actually experience them and see them like for example and this is going to sound so stupid but when i went and saw the pyramids i was really taken aback by how huge the bricks were for some reason i pictured them as you know not as huge as they are but i mean just to stand there and look at this marvel of architecture and see what how they put it together and it's just you can't conceive of things i mean it's one thing to see it online and to see it in pictures but to actually be there and experience it is something completely different and i know that sounds silly to be like i didn't know how big the bricks were but i mean they're huge and it's amazing, and it's it's just a moment. When I went to the Cairo Museum, I had to sit down because I was so overcome by seeing all these things I'd seen in textbooks for years, and then having them right in front of me, I was just overwhelmed. It was amazing.
0: And so I was wondering about how it changed your perspective on the world. How did these experiences change your perspective on yourself?
1: I'm not entirely sure, actually. I think I felt more cultured after seeing these things and a little more worldly, a little more global perspective, which I appreciate. I've always tried to teach my kids that when they have the opportunity to travel, they should because it just changes you. It's hard to not want to help the world when you've seen the world. you know, When you've been there and seen the people, you're like, we have to help these people, if that makes sense.
0: I also like that you described yourself as being aware that you were more capable, you recognize that you were more capable in any number of ways as a result of your experiences in the military.
1: Yeah. When I went into basic training, I went in with predominantly feeling like I wasn't going to graduate basic training. Like I was going to give it a shot and see how it went. So the day I graduated, I was really surprised with myself and I was like, I guess I can do these things, you know? And when you're in the military, you don't get a choice. You have to do the things they tell you. So even if it sounds really hard, you just have to figure out a way to do it. And that's a life lesson I took out for sure.
0: In your TEDx Omaha talk, the theme is around authenticity. And you make some reference to liking yourself. And I'm curious if at that time, As you're developing as a human being, you're growing, you're having these experiences, recognizing you're more capable of achievement than perhaps you were giving yourself credit for. Did you at that time feel like you liked yourself and that you were a person that you aspired to be?
1: I think so. It was a very formative time for me going into the military because having grown up, I'd say in poverty, having grown up in poverty, to then go and be able to pay my bills and, you know, maintain myself and do these adult things is very formative and very empowering.
0: What what was it that brought you to Omaha?
1: Uh, my husband got stationed at Offutt, So we were living in Turkey and they said, you can either go to Offutt, Nebraska or to a base in Maryland. And we wanted to start a family. So we looked, you know, practically, which
0: one could we afford
1: better? <laughs> we said, okay, Nebraska. And then we just never left.
0: That's, that's a classic Omaha story. It is, absolutely.
1: It? You know what they say, once you get off it, you can't get off it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this brings us forward somewhat to this stage where we just talked earlier about in 2015, you're having this unexpected stroke. What then happened in the uh, days and the weeks after the stroke itself,
1: a lot of um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, all the therapies up to the point to where my insurance company wouldn't pay anymore, so I took advantage of everything I could, but every turn, I was surprising the therapists and stuff because I mean I went into my stroke recovery very fit, so I mean, because I was a fitness instructor, I still am, but I was teaching a lot more back then and so things I wasn't supposed to do, I was doing. And I think that helped bolster my, my own confidence in myself. Like I'm lying in a bed in the ICU with a paralyzed left side. So I took my left leg and I shoved it over the side of the bed and then started compelling it back and forth, trying to get momentum going. So I was like shoving it and moving it. I was like, I got to get the pathways going again. And they walked in and they said, what are you doing? And I said, I am getting better
0: so describe then at that time what were some of the physical uh, and cognitive consequences of um the stroke and your recovery through that
1: my um executive functioning was very much affected and so that's decision making and mapping out directions and things like that so i was pretty helpless when it came to driving around or you know making even making a decision and um i also had some inattention issues with my left side where I wasn't perceiving everything on my left. So it took a long time for me to be ready to drive again. I had to take months off from driving and go through a training program to learn how to drive again safely. So, you know, I'm this independent woman who suddenly can't really walk, has trouble talking, can't find the words to talk, and who can't drive anywhere. And it was was just awful, you know, because you go from this... Life of independence to this life of dependence, which luckily I had a family who was there to, you know, help me in the recovery process. But it was, I mean, it's embarrassing asking for help when you've been able to do everything yourself for so long.
0: Extend that a little bit further then into the emotional responses you were having to finding yourself in this situation. So you just mentioned the embarrassment of having been someone that was. You know, competent and confident, and now someone that's having to ask for support.
1: Yeah, it was, it was embarrassment, but it was also just sheer frustration because something as easy as walking that we learn when we're babies and we just take for granted, to suddenly forget how to walk and not know how to anymore is one of the more bizarre things I've ever encountered in my life. And I was acutely aware of how bizarre it was when I was trying to remember how to walk. I said, Who does this happen to? Who has to do this? This is ridiculous. so um, it was a lot of frustration and yes embarrassment because, like I said before, my husband would frequently deploy, so I prided myself in being able to take care of the house, take care of the family, take care of everything on my own, as the woman who could do it all, and then all of a sudden, I couldn't do anything and it's a very strange, strange transition.
0: How have you moved? through those stages of recovery.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been eventual. But when I take everything that's happened and put it in like this little box, if I had to put the box away and label it, I would say it was empowering. Because, I mean, the whole thing sucked. Don't get me wrong. It was awful and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But it's gotten me to a point now to where I'm like, why couldn't I do this? Of course I could do this. I learned how to walk. I learned how to talk. You know, I got over this stroke and... I've since done these things and those things. So I'm pretty much like a woman who can't be stopped at this point.
0: In your TEDx Omaha talk, you reference the shift from that person you described as being obviously dependent to a person that to others around you, you would pass as normal. And the consequences of your stroke, such as, some challenge around spatial awareness or a little bit of perhaps tiredness and confusion with cognitive functioning you would apologize for those deficits to people around you but but you move through that could you describe what was happening to you at those moments in this recovery period when you felt the need to apologize to people and what it felt like to you to be passing as normal but knowing that you were aware that you were not
1: yeah my physical deficits recovered a lot faster than my cognitive deficits so by all by all recognition i look like just a normal person walking around you could hardly tell that i limped just a little bit but then when you start talking to me you realize that like my mind would wander really quickly or i'd pause for long periods of time while i desperately search for the next word i was trying to say and so i felt like i had to explain myself to people So I got ahead of it and I would preemptively apologize to people if I was going into a conversation with them I'd say, hey, listen, sometimes I forget words and I'm sorry and I'm really listening to you. Don't think that I'm like spacing out, but I had a stroke, so you're just going to have to forgive me about it. And to me, that felt authentic at the time. It felt like it was me laying all my cards out on the table and letting everybody know this is what you're getting into with me in a conversation. And it felt like a courtesy to other people to let them know. But then after a while, I started to realize that that was wearing on me to do this disclosure to everybody, and that eventually if I stopped explaining myself, then nobody even noticed these deficits anymore. I mean, everybody's mind wanders off during conversations. Everybody loses words occasionally. I just had to recognize that just because it was so painful to me to experience those things doesn't mean that I had to let people know they were happening, if that makes
0: sense. So part of the title to your TEDx Omar talk is about authenticity. So what does that term mean to you in that context?
1: Back then, being authentic was letting everybody know that I had these deficits, you know, because that's, I wouldn't say I embraced that's who I was, but I acknowledged that that's who I was at that time in my life. And I didn't know if that's who I was going to be forever or if I was going to get better. So I was like, I just have to live in this because this is who I am. But it has since evolved to authenticity being who I perceive myself as, As because I don't perceive myself as that bumbling person anymore. And every so often it'll sneak up on me and I'll forget some words or, you know, I'll space off or something. So it's still there. But who I am at my core is a very competent woman and an intelligent woman. And so that to me is my authentic self. So even when I'm doing things that aren't very intelligent, (laughs) then I'm still an intelligent woman. If I can't find my way, to a place that I've driven 12 times before, and I have to turn on Google Maps because my brain's not working, that's okay. It happens to everybody, at least to what I've been told.
0: You start the TEDx talk by repeating the sort of exhortation, these mantras we hear in the world around us around authenticity. And you say, Be yourself, show the world who you truly are. And it's that kind of expectation of the world that you're railing against in in some ways. What were the expectations that you think society is kind of trying to apply to us, the this mantra to be authentic? What were those expectations that you're trying to fight against in some ways?
1: Well, at least in my perception, there's been a bit of a shift where everybody kind of lays their cards on the table. Like if you have, I don't know, like say for example, my son has ADD and he thrives with it he you know he's doing great but it took us a little while to get the diagnosis and all that but in today's society he could go into an employer and say i'd like this job however you have to know that i have add so i need these accommodations and please don't hear what i'm not saying i'm not saying it's bad to ask for accommodations i'm saying it's more accepting to kind of go in somewhere and say this is what i need from people because of this thing that's happening to my brain or whatever so my pushback isn't against that because I know some people need that, but my pushback is feeling as though I owe an explanation to everybody for my behavior and for the things I can't do.
0: You, you talk about holding those expectations at arm's length, as it were. This is the image I have in my head by wearing masks, and the masks fit a particular context that you find yourself in, or a particular need that you find that you, that you have. Could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by this, this mask?
1: It's kind of the fake it till you make it thing. Uh, when I went in to interview my current job, I went in under the assumption that they had no idea that I was a stroke survivor. They just knew that I was a good writer, which is great. So when I went into the interview beforehand, it's like they know that I'm a writer, they've seen my writing, they know I'm a good writer. So that's who I am today. I am a good, competent writer. I'm not a woman who gets confused. I'm not a woman with short-term memory loss. I'm a good writer. And I walked in and that's who I presented to them. And I don't think that's like faking it or anything. It's just bringing out the best of who I think I am and who I think I am in that moment.
0: There's some reference to you having elements of a theatrical career. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit assuming that i'm correct in having picked up on that
1: i was in theater growing up and did a little bit just a tiny bit of theater when i lived in las vegas and then i taught acting classes for arts for all a nonprofit here in omaha so i have the background of knowing how to present a character who you know you create in your head and i don't want that to sound like i run around being fake with people because that's not what i'm doing i just know how to portray who I think I am because who I think I am is not a person who forgets her words and she's not a person who gets lost driving. She is, you know, a competent, intelligent person. And so that's who I portray.
0: Is there a Tamsin Butler? If you take off a mask, is there another mask and another mask? Does it go on forever? Are there a hundred masks that added together make up Tamsin Butler? Or is there a real, as it were, true or grounded or eternal times and Butler underneath?
1: I mean, that's very tricky because I put on so many masks, as we all do, um, that sometimes, you know, you forget who you are at your core. But like I said in my TEDx talk, when I take the mask off, I'm a very vulnerable person. And, I mean, essentially, my psyche is damaged in knowing that at any moment you can die, you know. Um, so. That darkness is there deep down, and it's still an element of who I am. But when I remove all the masks of, you know, hey, how you doing, Stuart? On the inside of them, like, hey, Stuart, do you know that we could die at any moment? <laughs> and nobody wants to talk to that, Tamson.
0: I love that you ask that question and then laugh out loud. <laughs> it's not a new
1: concept to me.
0: A refrain in your TEDx talk is about what happens if you don't like the person that's showing up in this particular context. And I asked you this question a little bit earlier, and I'm wondering again: Do you like who you are?
1: I do now. Yes, I've carefully crafted who I am. Like the decisions I've made and everything have all been to the means that to the end of who I am now. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, the things I get involved with, the projects I take on, all of it are a piece of me and everything I've selected, realizing who I want to be and who I will present myself as.
0: I appreciate you sharing how you went into this interview for a a writing professional role. And that's a role that you fulfill now, but it would... Seem natural that writing for you is a slightly different practice. And I'm, I'm curious, how is writing different now than perhaps it was before?
1: Well, one of the things I mentioned in my TEDx talk is that the damage to my brain somehow made me a faster writer. So my brain thinks differently now than it used to. I've always been a good writer, but now I'm a good fast writer, if that makes sense. Because if you ask me to write something, just immediately my brain starts mapping it out. Whereas before it was more of a natural flow of I'd sit down and write something, but now I know you know, it's going to take this route and there it is. And I mean, of course, there's some flexibility to that and that's where the creativity comes in. But there's almost like an obsessive uh, portion of my brain that wants to get the writing done, if that makes sense.
0: And what about the creative writing? Because you clearly have a, a love of words and language and the structure of language. Your published work has been a little more in the sort of nonfiction world and your professional role is obviously it's creative, but it's, it's in a nonfiction domain. I'm just curious if you're doing creative writing for yourself.
1: I do enjoy creative writing. I have a million ideas for stories, but then when I sit down to write them, it just doesn't come out like nonfiction does. And I don't know why that is. And I think I lost some of my creative mojo with the brain damage. I'm not sure. The stories are there. I just don't know how to write them.
0: You co-founded something called Stromius? Yes. <laughs> Could you tell me about Stromies? That
1: is uh, myself and Angie Jorgensen and Sarah Conaway. Um, I spoke at the Go Red for Women Expo in 2016, and Angie was in attendance. She's a stroke survivor with a much more dramatic story than mine. She died twice or something and they had to bring her back to life. And so she has this really dramatic story that's fantastic. And again, don't recommend that that happens to anybody, but it makes her a great story. So I met her and uh, the first time we got together for coffee, she comes in in this whirlwind of fabulousness because she's just this wonderful woman. And she plops down in front of me in the booth, goes like this to me. She holds up one finger, like, hang on opens up her notebook, reads real quick. And then what she's reading is ask her how she's doing. And she goes, how are you? <laughs> like that, And I said, I completely understand where you're coming from because early on in stroke recovery, we forget about you know little things like that. And so in that moment, I was like, I have to spend more time with this woman because we get each other. We understand where we're coming from. And so we had a really great conversation. And then about a year later, Sarah Conaway reaches out to me because she had seen something that the Heart Association put out about me and she had just had a stroke. So I met with her and we talked about how great it was to talk to somebody else who understood, you know, what we'd gone through. And I said, You have to meet Angie Jorgensen. So I set up a meeting of all three of us and it was like just magic happened. The three of us just automatically got each other. We're all from very different backgrounds, but the three of us just clicked immediately. So then the joke became When the three of us would get together, I'd tell my husband, sorry, I got to go. I'm going to go hang out with my stroke homies. So then he shortened it to stromies. So then I talked to Angie and Sarah because they wanted to do something together. They said, maybe we should write a book together or something. I said, I'm all for that. But first we have to get an internet presence. And they said, sure, let's get an internet presence. So we started that and it just took off into this thing where we have members from around the globe who support each other just in recovery and there's just such comfort in knowing somebody who's been through something you've been through and I'll tell you Stuart we've met with people in Omaha who have who had recently had strokes and wanted to meet us because they knew we'd been through it too and we'd sit and we'd talk to them and we'd say things like so are you like more confused now and they'd say I am more confused but I thought that was just my age and we said You have damage in your brain. That's from your stroke. And it's been an amazing just watching the light bulb go off in their head when they realize, oh, this thing did affect me because we're so taught to just get over things, you know. And um, one woman, I was friends with her on Facebook before we met with her, with the other stromies. And I watched her, her statuses change over time, where before it was just, you know, doing this today, doing that today. And then, after she met with us, she started posting things like, "Ah, oh, really rough day today with my brain, but I'm giving myself grace, you know things like that, and watching how they're able to just start talking about it and be open about it. It was super empowering. So that's what the stromies are about.
0: It would have been so easy for you to have hidden as it were from the world, to have existed within the world but and with your family, but perhaps to have Withdrawn a little bit, but but you didn't. You chose to submit, apply for, be accepted to prepare for and deliver a TEDx talk. What kind of, I don't know, internal dialogue about courage did that require for you, and and what was that experience like?
1: One thing that Sarah and Angie and I always talk about is we want to be the person that we needed when we were in the ICU. Um, when I was in the ICU. I was trying to find stories online about people who had gone through what I'd gone through and who had recovered fully. But it was all like, so and so had a stroke and they died. Sadly, they died at a young age, you know, and it was all this bad stuff. And I said, I need to see some stories of people who recovered. And since I couldn't really find those when I recovered, I remembered who I was back in the ICU bed. And I was like, I need to be that person. And so getting up on the TEDx stage was terrifying but exhilarating but i i knew that it would help some people and it's funny because i thought my audience was people with brain injuries like myself but i've heard from a lot of people who have other issues like my husband's friend slipped on the ice and hurt his back and has never quite walked correctly ever since and he identified with the things i said which i wasn't even expecting that at all in the least
0: This is a long arc of experiences. What have you, at this point, looking back now, learned about yourself?
1: I think it's important, going back to what I was saying, to realize what you need at a certain time in life and then to become that thing for other people. That's been kind of like my crusade ever since the stroke, is, you know, I couldn't have these things back then, so let me give those to somebody now. That's kind of how I parent with my kids too. You know, things I didn't have as a kid, I want to make sure I give those things to my kids now. So I guess it's a, it's an interesting existence of existing in different time zones. Like here's me as a kid needing this thing. Here's me as a mom giving it to my kid. Here's me as a stroke survivor lying in the ICU bed. And here's me as a survivor who's recovered pretty well, giving it to somebody in the ICU bed.
0: We've been talking about authenticity and, who we sell, see ourselves as being, and issues, issues of identity. So those people closest to your children and your husband, how have they perhaps changed their perspectives on, on you, but also on the world and how they see themselves in the world?
1: I think my family pretty much sees me as unstoppable now. We have the joke in my family that I'm immortal too. I say, if stroke didn't get me, nothing's going to get me. I can't die. (laughs) So that's kind of our family joke. But I think they they see me as someone who can pretty much do anything, which I appreciate. Um, My kids, I think they look up to me, I would imagine. Um, My daughter said the sweetest thing to me after I did the TED Talk, where she said she might like to do a TED Talk. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. And she says, well, I never thought I could, but then I saw you do it. I said, that's just what a mom wants to hear, that I'm like empowering my kids to go do things.
0: Do you think about your identity as someone that is a stroke survivor and it is you before the stroke and you after the stroke? That is your defining moment uh, in your life. Or is that just way too reductive in terms of how you think about my identity as Tamsin Butler?
1: It is definitely like a pre-stroke Tamsin and a post-stroke Tamsin. Absolutely. It is, uh, I think I told you this before, before the pandemic happened, it was like, did this happen before or after the stroke? Now it's like, did this happen before or after the pandemic? So my timeline's all messed up. But for me, the actual stroke itself wasn't so much a defining moment as was little things that happened in the recovery of the stroke. Those are the things that stick out to me more so than the actual stroke itself. It wasn't long after my stroke that I started teaching fitness classes again and uh, Crunch Fitness was opening, and my friend was going to be the hiring manager, so she asked me if I wanted to audition. She didn't know that I'd had the stroke, so I said, yes, I do want to audition, and just work toward it, work toward it, work toward it, Um, because like I said, my physical came back a lot faster than my mental did, and the night before my audition, my husband and our neighbors, we went for a walk, and I tripped and fell, and just busted my knee open, and just gushing blood because I was on blood thinners at the time. And it was just this awful moment. And I had this moment where I was lying in bed with an ice pack, knowing that I couldn't audition. Luckily she let me audition later, but I'm lying there and I was so frustrated by my body. And I told my husband, I said, nobody would blame me if I just gave up right now. And he looked me right in my eyes and he said, I would. And I said, okay, let's get going then, you know? And then, Got better from the knee, eventually auditioned and got the role at Crunch. So that was fun because that was a fun gym to work at for a while. Um, so that moment sticks out in my head a lot because in the moment where I was ready to just be like, that's it, I'm a stroke survivor, that's my life, as you know, some people rightfully do, my husband just pulled me, yanked me right out of it. And I'm so grateful he did. <laughs>
0: My guest today has been writer, Air Force veteran and stroke survivor, Tamsin Butler. Tamsin, thanks so much for sharing your uh, life and your story with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Stuart. I appreciate it.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.